Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger. I'm the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this week's episode, I'll be speaking to Sean McCann, founding member of the acclaimed multi-million album-selling band Great Big C, and his wife, Andrea Aragon. Together, they have written an explosive new memoir of addiction, recovery, music, love and tragedy, published by Nimbus. Sean was born in Carbonea, a small town on the Avalon Peninsula in Newfoundland and Labrador, and he rose to global fame with Great Big C as they toured the world as Canada's top party band. Today, Sean is a renowned mental health, addiction and recovery advocate who continues to sing and share his story of surviving 25 years of alcoholism that once masked a dark secret of childhood abuse. Andrea Aragon is the daughter of a Vietnam War veteran and the fiercely loving mother of two growing boys, two indifferent cats and two bad dogs. She is still married to Sean and today we learn about how they survived Sean's trauma and alcoholism, the secret to a successful marriage, and why Fortnite isn't such a bad thing when you're stuck in a global pandemic lockdown with two teenage sons. Sean, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, James. Thanks for having us, man. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the book. It was uh, just so incredibly uh, moving, uh, powerful, also very funny at times. Um, why did you decide to write it at this stage uh, in your lives and careers? That's a good question to start. Um, <laughs> I've been writing, uh, I'm a songwriter, you know, and uh, I've been writing songs my whole life. And they've been more of an exercise in taking big stories or big concepts and then reducing them into 14-line sonnets with singable choruses, you know. And uh, that's the muscle set that I've developed over time and uh, and almost and a coping mechanism for myself as well. And they've been of great comfort to me, uh, especially in my recovery over the last eight years. This, the, the, the new songs that I wrote, started to write that weren't about drinking and forgetting, but about facing the truth and, and, and dealing with it. So I, I wrote three records that are, I call them records, but they're whatever they are now, free audio files for the masses. <laughs> and um, the first one was Help Yourself, which was, you know, very uh, literal. Then it was You Know I Love You, which was the state of mind I found myself in. And then there was a place where I felt like I'd arrived in my recovery, and I, I felt really stable. And I think that was in 2017 that that was the third of a trio of musical statements that I wanted to make, uh, and it was an evolution musically. And I felt then that there was something, you know, I should I should dig deeper. I should delve into prose, which is something that was foreign to me and a very different set of muscles. Uh, but I wanted to go there. People had actually, what triggered it was so many people had asked me when I was going to write this book. And um, 
for a long time, I put it off. And, uh, you know, you can only put off the inevitable for so long. And uh, I realized the only reason I wasn't doing it was because I was afraid. And when I realized that, I knew it was what I had to do next. And that's when I started to write. And I wrote for about a year, wrote the book in its entirety, I thought. and uh, But it felt like it was unfinished. And I showed it to Andrea. And we read it together. And uh, we knew something was missing. And then she showed me her journals that she'd been keeping in real time through these actual events in our lives together. And uh, some of those journals read like victim impact statements. They were devastating and... Uh, and painful to read and but they they told a story that I was I wasn't able to tell from my side and uh, I felt like that's when we had to write it together so we we started again and spent another year and um, I'm really glad we went down that path because it really reveals what a true conversation which is what the book really is it's it's a, it's the story of our marriage and I couldn't have told it alone yeah, that's beautiful. And and Andrea, I mean, how was it for you kind of uh, reliving those moments? Because that's what really makes the book, as you both obviously realised, you know, just being able to hear uh, from your perspective um, what everything was like and, and, and how you felt. What, what was that like for you? Yeah, it was, you know, it was hard. There were there were moments when it was hard and we, we had to step away. I had to step away from from the family for, you know, a day or two and, and actually kind of go into solitude and, and write the really hard parts because, you know, going through it once was hard enough and then and then having to relive it and tell it in a in story form was was difficult and painful, but it was also something that I found brought some more understanding and closeness to Sean and I as we were going through it. He was able to read these things stuff that maybe he didn't know about because he had been he was drinking at the time and he had no memory of it um so as painful as it was and i i agree with sean that if something's hard you know it just means you actually have to lean into it more and do it um it really in the end brought us in my opinion closer together as as partners and as and as friends truly that's incredible and it feels like the kind of uh project where anyone reading this uh, will not only be inspired but I feel like it's going to help a lot of people in the respect that you know it's obviously an ode to, to, to recovery and, and tragedy and music and family but at its very core it's essentially a love story uh, about the two of you. Yeah it's, it's uh, a story about love and survival and the survival of love. Uh, our marriage you know we're still together and, uh, you know, even though there's dark parts of this book, I don't think you can shy away from them. If you're going to tell the truth, you should tell the whole truth. But, you know, the book yeah. is essentially about hope. And, it, and the reason we put it out now is because we want people to know that success is possible if you just don't give up. If you try really hard, you're, we're all able to do it. We're not, we're not special people. We're just human beings like anyone else. And it was difficult, but, you know, we, uh, we chose... We chose success. We chose to help ourselves and we chose to stay together. And once you make those decisions and you and you stick with it, it's it's you're capable of achieving those successes. And that's what the message really is. If if the guy from Great Big Sea can stop drinking, then anyone can. And if our marriage can survive alcoholism and addiction, then other marriages can. Yeah. Would you say it was cathartic for, for both of you? Um getting these things out there both to each other but also to other people who are struggling um you know we've been asked that question before and i i i 
I don't find I didn't find it cathartic at the time. I didn't I didn't feel like it was something that we needed to go through as a couple. Um, I did feel like we needed to show our vulnerability because as Sean has witnessed at his musical keynotes that he does when he has people coming up to him disclosing their traumas to him uh, when they see somebody doing something vulnerable and just kind of putting it all out there it helps other people become brave and perhaps face their own demons so that's that's where we wanted to go with it um but in in terms of uh, healing me more and healing us more i feel like we had done that work and and we had been into that place set for nine years now, the, the day that Sean stopped drinking. Um, we'd, we'd been brutally honest with each other since that day. So we've been we've been through it. <laughs> We're absolutely perfect. Yeah. We have the perfect, <laughs> perfect marriage now. Happy all the time. Oh. <laughs> well, I, yeah, and, 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 and of course, during lockdown, uh, all marriages are so easy during lockdown, oh, of course. Uh, yeah, at some oh, point, Andrea and, uh, chose to, to uh, practice physical distancing <laughs> from me. <laughs> In, during the lockdown, so they said to, just be, to be safe. careful, very safe. They yes. said to be safe. You gotta, you know, stay six feet away from each Space other. Space is sanity. Is sanity. <laughs> oh, you can't be too careful for sure. <laughs> um, how, how did you spend your lockdown? Did you find it a period where um, did you take up any other hobbies? Did you find yourself writing more songs? How did you kind of embrace it, if if, if at all? Well, first, I, I like the, the addict in me. Uh, rose up and, and I, I my first reaction was to live in denial and hope that it would be over tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that went on for about a month and I didn't change any uh, patterns of behavior. But what I do, uh, what I still love to do, what I advocate for is um, I spend a lot of time outdoors. We have two dogs, so I run with dogs every day. I love to run and I love to paddle my kayak up and down the rivers and bays here. Um, I think they're essential to my well well-being. Um, but this, the, the actual, the, the dealing with the book, especially in COVID times, we weren't going to release it because it didn't make much sense to, because all the stores were closed, the bookstores. And then the uh, publisher, uh, asked if we would do that if we put the ebook out at the, at the same time, which they don't generally do. So we thought that was useful. We thought that might have a positive impact, especially during this time when people are, uh, under some stress. So we went with that. That path and that gave us, you know, it was a it was a weird, strange. It, it was a strange unrolling of things, but it actually forced us into kind of dealing with how to promote a product in the time of COVID online, and do promotion when there was nothing to do. So we ended up creating a series of like Facebook shows and events, just to talk about the book and get the word out and. Um, well, and to feel better. And to feel better, you yeah. know, and I think it had a positive <laughs> effect on people. But, it, you know, it gave us the opportunity to really create something from nothing. And it gave us something to do. Yeah. So we were actually quite right. busy in April and May and right up until now doing um, weird things like, like this interview with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, and the Facebook <laughs> thing, part of that was um, Sean had found that at his, his concerts and at his events, getting people to sing always made them feel better. And, you know, we were just right. as stressed out as everybody else. So I'm like. Let's get on Facebook and make people sing. And, you know, it was what we were just using Facebook, so we didn't have any interaction there. But it was it 
kind of was funny enough. And and that was that was like Sean said, that was our the thing that we concentrated on. So right now, as things are starting to open up, we're able to get outside more and do more. So yeah. it was it was a tough three months though. We weren't we weren't singing Sean yeah. McCann songs either. We were singing <laughs> no, you know, Abba. Abba and, uh, <laughs> Gloria Gaynor and uh, any manner of wham, uh, wham, any, anything. So it was, but it was a great relief and a re- and a release, and uh, yeah. that was great fun for a while. I don't know what we'll do next. No. We'll probably we'll Not think like, of something. Well, that's the wonderful thing. I mean, really, about you know this whole lockdown period is people finding different ways of doing things. And, you know, as you say, suddenly, uh, you know, online orders going through the roof and ebooks going through the roof. And equally, I mean, if you were on a book tour, there would be a limit to the number of face-to-face interviews you could do in a day. And yet suddenly in the virtual world, you can do, in theory, you wouldn't want to, but 50 in a day. Um, and I guess that's the kind of interesting thing. And there's, you know, lots of people have been in that position where uh, releasing things that were never intended to be released during a kind of a global pandemic but but you did it and you made it work and as you rightly say uh the book could really not be more relevant at a time like this when people are struggling with all of those demons um more than ever because they're trapped at home with their heaven forbid families (laughs) it's a stressful time and if you're an addict or if you're on the fence or if you're uh, you know prone to you know drinking and using drugs to to, as coping mechanisms and this is a very you're a very vulnerable person at this time and a lot of people reach out to us now on Facebook and, and ask that question usually is you know I, I drink this much do you think I have a problem and it, my answer is usually if you think you have a problem then you do and the problem now is people have so much time on their hands to sit back and worry and also drink or use drugs and uh, I think the next I think there's going to be a fallout from all this. I think uh, sure. there's addiction rates are going to going to go up, going to be very high, and that means rehabilitation rates will have to be high too to to kind of correct it. So, and I, you know, I just I know how damaging that is as an addict. I just I don't wish that that problem or that burden on anybody. And I, but I do think that that will be a side effect of COVID. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, towards the end of the book, you talk very wisely and at length about the the kind of contemporary uh, addiction to digital screens, which, of course, I mean, that also has been something which uh, has gone through the roof as parents, uh, and I'm guilty of this, resorting to uh, using uh, games of Fortnite as a babysitter to my children. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we fought the battle against it for a long time and uh, as parents, and there's no no shame or guilt in it. But now, like in COVID times, like you have to make peace with the enemy and call a truce. Like now, it's the only way our kids could be connected to their friends. So we we let them play more. Well, the only way they can do school. And the only way, yeah. But I do think it doesn't, uh, again, I think there will be a correction. There will have to be because I do know and the stats prove like uh, screen time in general does not make us feel better or make us feel happier. It's not good for our physical or mental well-being in the long run. So we'll, people should remember to make sure they balance out. You know, we need to stay connected and this is the way to do it now. But we need to be outside. We need to be face to face. And uh, the sooner that happens, the better off we'll all be. And one of the things I was going to ask was about the way in which when you do, obviously, you go back on the road and I'm sure you're looking forward to performing again. How different is your 
touring life now? And of course, people are coming to shows now. For, I would imagine for the most part, all of your fans are aware of the fact that uh, that you have, have overcome your addiction and, and are, you know, are in, at this stage in your life. But um, does it feel different now not being the kind of the, the king of the party when you're on the road? And, and how do you kind of reconcile that? I just, I've become very, I've, become very good at just being 100% present and in the moment and, and, and myself. And, you know, Sean McCann, the shanty man, which was my cartoon character name when I was in Great Big Sea, they, uh, they, that, that's, that was an image that we uh, came up with and promoted. But that isn't who I am. So most people uh, didn't know who I was until I started to be myself, uh, you know, seven years ago and started to go out and do my own bookings and do my own shows and concerts which evolved into what I do mostly which is a, what I call a musical keynote speaking uh, at conferences and uh, and that kind of thing but what I do is I show up I'm just I'm just a man and his guitar and and I have my truth and my songs I don't have a set list or even a really a script or a plan I just I make myself completely open and that disarms the audience and I'm able you know to look and pay attention and I and I try to read what the faces in front of me are needing that that time, and I try to. My I see my job is is delivering them something that can actually help them, and it's always music related. I mean, music is the, is the weapon of choice, but you know what the, what is needed might differ from town to town. Yeah, there was. It's actually quite fascinating to watch if if you ever go to one of his events, and he does a bunch of work with um, different groups, and some of it pro, most of it, a lot of it pro bono. Um, I know. I remember this one time he went up to a group in. Really, I don't get paid for some of this. <laughs> <laughs> you're my manager. You're supposed to make sure. You're fine. You're fine. Um, there was this group in um, Newfoundland, and you probably know what I'm speaking about. And it was for um, teenagers that were in a halfway house, and you ended up doing a song with them, and they were able to get out their feelings through song. Like you wrote a song with them. Oh yeah, yeah. That was. Um incarcerated youth with addiction issues right. in uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland. And it was Hope it was Valley. really powerful because he was able to get these kids to write a song with him, which not every, you know, addictions person that goes in to try and speak to kids has that has that muscle. But he was able to let them get their words out in a song. And it's just it's a really powerful thing that what Sean can bring to an audience and it's even more powerful than the screaming beautiful songs that he did in Great Big Sea. And, you know, I told him once, I think your best work is yet to come. This is once he left the band. And I stand by that. I believe music is medicine. It certainly saved me and uh, saved our marriage in many ways. And, For sure. You know, it does. The best thing about music, it can really do some really good work. It can really help people. And, uh, and it won't have the damaging side effects of an antidepressant or, you know, cannabis or alcohol. Uh, one good thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. And that's from Bob Marley, yeah. one of uh, our, one of the biggest cannabis consumers <laughs> of all time. <laughs> but but, but he, he, he saw the value in music as well, you know. I mean, there was a, it is a great medicine, and, and it, we all have access to it. Everyone either listens to music. I, don't, I have yet to meet a human being who didn't uh, at least listen in, to music in an enjoyable way or have a preference, you know, who didn't have some attachment yeah. to some song. Uh, it's the universal medicine that works on us all. 
Absolutely. And I mean, and so that that was was last year, I think, wasn't it, when you toured uh, Newfoundland Labrador and it was the first time in a couple of decades that, that you'd done so. Why was that? Was it was it kind of too hard to go back to the uh, and tour the place where you had been known as the as the kind of the party guy or were there kind of other reasons attached to that? Well, there's there was really no no one asked me to come back. <laughs> to be quite honest, I mean, I wasn't invited. I got my. I came back because I was invited by the uh, youth leadership conference. Who uh, were it was in Clarenville, and um, I I really wanted to uh, speak to the youth of Newfoundland about addiction and about sexual abuse. So I went. Uh, they had no money or sponsor or anything like that. I just went, and then I was able to kind of build a little tour around it which strangely enough it started with the youth leadership and uh, which was brilliant by the way it was about 300 kids from all over the province so it was a it was a it was a well-struck blow from my point of view because I got to speak to a very diverse from Labrador and all over Newfoundland all rural Newfoundland so a great spread of people in all these different communities and they were bright lights it was very inspirational for me um, and then I, I did some touring around the province in, in little, like, old churches that were converted and little theaters, and they weren't alcohol-based events, so it all worked well. And uh, then I ended up speaking at the uh, Her Majesty's Penitentiary for the last show. Uh, I went into the penitentiary, which is the oldest penitentiary in Canada, and should not be still there. And in uh, 1930, they resolved, the government resolved that it was so decre- decrepit that it needed to be replaced. It was inhumane. But it's still the penitentiary in Newfoundland. It's still the place where people get incarcerated. So I went in there, and that was a powerful exchange because, you know, I know, and from my work with inmates, they, they're they almost always in there because of addictions and mental health issues. They're not evil people. They're just, they're, they're sick. They need help. And that's where they end up because that's, that's, what we're, that's what we choose to give them, jail. And in that case, the jail is literally falling down around them. It's a dangerous place. So that was that's how I that's how I like to tour now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, very different. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what were what were the old days like? Like, like, can you describe a, a, an average evening like after a show um, when you would go out? Like, was it as kind of uh, as, as as wild as people kind of think it would be? Well, I was just, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, okay, short answer, yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was only there for a little bit of it, and yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Well, we, yeah, I was going to say, like, there is a... The tour bus life, is, there's, it's, it's, glamour, it's, it's glamorized, I guess, but well, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's 10 dudes on a bus. But, I mean, in our bus, there was always... The fridge was always full of booze, and, you know, we'd have, uh, have to get up for 4 p.m. for sound check at 4 p.m., and then we'd be free until 8, and the, the rider would be there. And then, you know, after show, we had nothing to do till the next day till 4 p.m. in a different town. So it was almost like we were a crowd of Vikings, you know? <laughs> like we just go raiders. <laughs> but then there was no taboo. I mean, we were a party band. We were all about our songs were literally about drinking old black rum and whatnot. And we, uh, you know, everyone wanted to have the drink with the lads from Newfoundland. And um, we lived up to that reputation. It was a brand that we co-opted from our culture and we exploited to the best of our ability. We made it a lot of money doing it and, uh, you know, created a lot of hangovers in, in, you know, Canadian and American and European in the course of a 20-year career. So, that it, you know, it was, it was, you know, there was no, we, we were 
what we said we were. Like we, we, in all fairness, yeah, you we lived up to our reputation, and I was by walk far the, the walk and talk. The talk. <laughs> yeah, we, we weren't kidding. <laughs> it wasn't a joke. Well, you right. certainly weren't. <laughs> no. Yeah, you weren't weren't faking it. No, no. <laughs> And, um, and do you ever uh, still perform uh, Great Big Sea songs now? And if so, how, how does that feel, given the, the kind of the, the shift? Uh, you know what? There was a time for about a year where I swore I would never sing another one. And uh, I met this woman, Annalise Boyer. I wrote about her in the book, actually. Um, I was at Sean Majumder's, has a festival called The Gathering, which is in the middle of nowhere, Newfoundland, a town called Burlington now but i think it was originally called gay side um anyway they uh he has this festival up there and i went there and it's you know it's very rural um i got there and i realized the reason i got the invitation was because i was there was no beer tent because it's a very religious community there's like four churches in this little small town and so they were allowed to have a festival but they weren't allowed to per permit it to sell alcohol so i was probably the only newfoundland musician they could get to come <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so, so I found myself there uh, walking around in the woods behind the stage and I ran into Annalise and uh, she was, she changed my life. She was, uh, she was crawling around on her hands and knees behind the stage. So I walked over to her and I said, are you okay? Cause I thought she'd fallen or lost something. And she, she looked at me and she said, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just looking for four leaf clovers. And um, I just, I don't know. I just thought she might have been stoned at that point or very, very strange encounter. But she stood up and she said, I know who you are. She looked me right in the eye. You're Sean McCann. And I came here to tell you something. You should never give up. You should never give up. And these were the first words out of her mouth, complete stranger. You know, I was just floored. Uh, she was so direct. And uh, anyway, she went on, told me her story. Her Annalise was... Um, a huge Great Big Sea fan, and she'd been uh, unfortunately struck by a, a drunk driver. And as a result of that accident, had a brain injury, which is going to affect her for the rest of her life. And uh, that's why she's so direct. And uh, she had, hadn't been to a concert in years because of the volume and the lights that caused her to have these big seizures. And uh, But she saw I was playing in the middle of nowhere, Newfoundland, and she drove all the way from Fergus, Ontario, to see me play and that at that night she, she 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 was there when I met her and she said are you gonna are you gonna sing any great big sea songs tonight <laughs> and she, you know after telling her her story quite frankly I was like how could I say no and I did and I sang all great big sea songs and uh, you know it blew my heart apart and, uh, and that was and, the first time you'd sang them since since you'd left the band yeah and it but it just resolved a lot of issues that were unresolved. I mean, I, all of a sudden, my past ceased to be a prison for me. I moved forward. I moved the great leap forward, to, co to quote the, uh, the, uh, the great British singer-songwriter Billy Bragg. Um, it was a huge evolution very quickly for me, and it all happened because someone was so honest and upfront with me and was so unafraid to say exactly what was on her mind and uh, I learned a lot from that exchange. And one of it was that, you know, singing Great Big Sea songs doesn't hurt me anymore. And um, that, you know, being fearless is the only way forward. And she's still, I mean, I'm still in touch with her. She, and at the end of that show, she gave me the four-leaf clover that she found, which was amazing to me. It was, it was miraculous to me. I've never, I've never, and I, you know, I've never encountered anything or anyone like it before or since. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't, if I was still drunk and 
you know, hungover or stoned, self-absorbed self, I, I would never have stopped to say hello to her. And that's what recovery is. That's the kind of that's the kind of thing that can happen to you if you're open to it. So what I guess she was able to do was open me up like no one else before. That's beautiful. That's magical. And it's um it's one of those kind of uniquely it feels like that feels like a uniquely Canadian experience where uh someone would connect with someone in a place like that. Like uh I mean for you like what 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 do you love most about Newfoundland and Labrador? Like what do you miss about it and what what do you love when you go back there? I miss sea kayaking. I love the I love the ocean and Newfoundland is is a is a was it described in by in one travel book as a terrible terribly beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Uh the cliffs, I mean I love being in the woods in Newfoundland. It's all crown land so you're allowed to go out with your dogs and your animals off leash. You're allowed to light fires safely, uh, pretty much wherever you want. And, you know, if you can survive the elements, you're, you're welcome to enjoy them. But it is strikingly beautiful. I mean, I miss uh, Newfoundland gets a lot of great uh, and lives up to its reputation for having friendly people. But they don't have a monopoly. There's friendly people everywhere in the world. But Newfoundland does have some beautiful outdoor um, environments to, to, to enjoy. And, you know, I found the best version of myself a, in the middle of nowhere on my kayak out in the ocean or deep in the woods or on a stage disarmed, with, armed only with my guitar in front of people uh, being as open as I can. That's the best version of Sean McCann that there is. Amazing. It's beautiful. Do, do, do either of you still speak to other members of the band and are you aware if they've read the book and, and is that a kind of a connection that, that you guys have? I think Andre is still uh, texts... Uh, I follows Alan all the time. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> sure why. <laughs> don't. <laughs> don't be a smart ass. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I don't. I used to be quite good friends with with Alan's wife, and you know when when our life changed when Sean got sober and and we went through the the hard times that we did. Um, I had to step away from from those friendships because I, I needed to be authentic and real with what was happening, not only within my own family, but within um, Sean's work life. And what was happening in his work life was obviously happening in to my home. So I just I had to step away from it. And um, I haven't spoken to anybody in that area for a very long time. I mean, I still have some friends in Newfoundland that we were close to and that was within the band realm, but not in the band circle. Ultimately, we had to leave St. John's because it lives up to its reputation as well. It's a party town. It's the New Orleans of of Canada. It's it's full on, as we say at home. But, you know, there's also a real... um, Newfoundlanders are fiercely proud people, and Mm. and I am one, so I can say this, you know. But if you leave... You're dead to them in many ways. Like that's that's not a good thing to do. Like they don't, they're not happy about that. They certainly don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about it. Yeah. So you know, I left for great reasons. I mean, I there a there was no work for me there. I, I wasn't. I don't do bars anymore. Uh, so my phone stopped ringing. But B, like it is a bar scene. It is. I didn't have many so any sober friends, and uh, I had to change my environment. And you know, if you're going to survive addiction, you had to be prepared to make those massive changes. So we made the right choice in leaving but you know a lot of people were uh, personally insulted by that decision in mm-hmm. some way so you know it, it became fractured I you know I'm still I still go back when I can I still have people there and I I, I make it a point to uh, 
to do whatever work I can while I'm there. But I think that um, it was the right decision to make. And I still love Newfoundland. And I hope people understand that, you know, sometimes you make, you have to think outside uh, local politics or, you know, the, the party line and make the right call for you. Absolutely. And as you rightly say, I mean, you're, you're back there doing extremely meaningful work which which is which is changing lives so you, you it's not like you've left you you, you may not live there but it, you're, you're still there doing that important work that's why i go back and uh but newfoundland brands itself and i think it sells itself short it it literally relies heavily on its reputation for a party a kitchen party brand we great big c coined the name kitchen party in uh, 1993 for a much music special and I regret doing that now because the government ran with it right. <laughs> and we and we promoted it. Yeah. But there's so much more to it. And, uh, you know, it's it's just an oversimplification. But, you know, there's a lot more to it than the screechings and all that foolishness. It's there is beauty and there's strength in Newfoundland if you're willing to look for it. And that's what they should be marketing, in yeah. my opinion. It's the people that have survived really harsh, harsh conditions in the middle of the North Atlantic for hundreds of years. Yeah, we deserve more than the... Uh, the Newfoundland joke, yeah. right? No, for sure. And um, and and Andrea, where did you grow up? And can you just tell me a bit about your upbringing? Yeah, I was um, I was born in Utah. I was, I'm from the states, and I was born in Utah, and then moved when I was one to Minnesota. And so I basically my entire life I was raised in Minnesota. And then after college, I moved to Colorado, which is where I met Sean. <laughs> and then I moved to Newfoundland for, and I think I was there for 13 or 14 years. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so, um, in Newfoundland? Yes. That's how, how long, long have we been together? I know. Oh my God. So long. <laughs> There's some big it's gaps in Sean's revelation. Big gaps in Sean's memory, I take it. <laughs> yes, many years of That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I had a, I, I thought it was a typical childhood. Uh, come to find out that it wasn't so typical once I started writing stuff down. Sean's like, no, this is not normal. This is not <laughs> what normal people would, you know had gone through in their childhoods. But, you know, my father was a Vietnam, is a Vietnam War vet and struggled with PTSD unbeknownst to him, but uh, therefore tried to quell his demons with alcohol. And I had an absentee mother. And I did a lot of self-harm in terms of um, cutting and eating disorders and stuff. And I, I go into it in the book only as by way, for a way to say, this is how I came to be able to not really see Sean's addiction as a problem when I first met him, if that makes sense. Like living with an alcoholic father, I think really did prepare me to meet Sean and party with him and live with him as an alcoholic and not have, not see the problems or the enabler that I was being. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Until I had babies. Yeah. And then it was a big problem. And, and of course, it's mostly your fault. It is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I will take all the blame, as most mothers always do. Yeah, that's right. What, um, how old are your sons now? 14 and 12. Amazing. So, so, I mean, for both of you, kind of, you know, going through all of the things you've been through and, and coming out the other side, how do you think it's kind of, do you think it's changed the way that you, that you parent and, and the way that you're there for your children? Yeah, 100%. I think from a very young age, you know, so Sean's been sober almost nine years. And so that means Keegan was really young. Um, our oldest is Keegan um, when he got sober. But I think from a very young age, we were we have been 
as honest as we can be, you know, age appropriately with them. So they've known all of the ins and outs of both of our histories. Um, they've known about Sean's drinking and about his abuse. And again, this was all age appropriate and they've known more as they've gotten older. Um, but I've, I've taken a very strong tact in how I um, raise the boys in terms of being honest with them, giving them, a, giving them a voice. I've always given them a voice and um, letting them succeed and fail on their own merits. Um, and I think that not having any secrets in this house, because as I mentioned before, Sean and I have been brutally honest with each other and we expect that of our children. I think that is a complete 180 from certainly from where I grew up. Well, I, you know, I grew up where the truth was the was the enemy in the room. No one, if, no one talked about the truth. Was the last thing you wanted to talk about. Yeah. You know, that's oh, this happened. Well, let's not talk about that. Right. That's the Catholic way. That's the Catholic way. You know, cover it up, keep your secrets, and that that just leads to destruction and damage. Yeah. So I think you've changed the way that you parent based on how you were brought up. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean, you were brought up in a lot of love too. It's not that it love, was... but it was condition. It was, but we we could, we lied to each other all the time. Like, I mean, you know about this, but this we had this weird thing in our family where, rather than like we have a cottage that's two hours from St. John's, and um, rather than tell people when we were, because the concern was you drive out there certainly as teenagers, um, people were always concerned about accidents on the road. But we were conditioned not to tell mom the truth about when we left so she wouldn't worry. Right. <laughs> so we were literally literally conditioned, don't, don't tell us when you're really leaving, oh lie to us, <laughs> and then when you get there, just tell us you're there so we don't have to stop wor start worrying about you. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. So, <laughs> so the, you know, these kind of, that's a bit, that's true. And that was the way, that. and that's how we, that's how my family rolls. And I mean, I don't know where, that's really twisted, you know. <laughs> but that's just an example of uh, how we don't talk about a lot of things, and a lot of things just never got talked about, and that's why I was trained to keep secrets for many, many years. But you know, we're wide open. My my kids will not be burdened with indoctrination. Yeah, they're raised without religion. If they want to choose one later, they can, but they're not going to be. They weren't baptized. You know, anyone who wants to go down the dangerous path of religion should be at least old enough, the age of maturity. Choice. And be of sound mind and body. It's not something someone's immortal soul is not something someone else should take should make a decision about for them until they should. That's that's a big deal, and um, you know, it's not a small thing. But people just accept the rules as they are, and uh, so anyway, hopefully our our kids. I'm sure we'll damage them in other oh, ways. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, that's just but, what uh, parents, that's what we do as parents. <laughs> yes, that's kind <laughs> of the role, right? We've chosen to, to unburden them of at least those things that we know about that are, are We've wrong. Given them many other burdens, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, not letting them but play Fortnite. We have Fortnite three rules enough. in this in this house. Uh, the three rules we've come up with. Oh. Uh, the first rule is. Don't be an asshole. That's a good rule. That's the first rule. That's the first rule. Uh, the second one is also don't be an asshole. And the third rule is don't be an asshole. Right. So there's three rules. And, uh, of course, the message there is just kindness above all. What matters to one matters to everybody here. So, And this is a hard lesson to learn, but this is how we try. This is the only thing we try to focus on. Be compassionate. Be kind. And let the stuff work itself out. But you, that's, you have to say that we did co-opt those three family rules from Willie Nelson. 
Oh yes, those but, are I mean, his rules. That Willie, we, we Willie is our Willie is our new messiah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a religion everyone can sign up for. Willie Nelson. Yeah, I just assumed everyone believed in Willie's. <laughs> The deity of Willie Nelson, but yeah, that's Willie's from Willie. We learned those rules from his autobiography. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So you know, I think that goes a long way, and it should apply to everybody in the world. If everyone just followed those three rules, the <laughs> world would be a far nicer place. <laughs> You're not wrong. It would solve all of the problems going on right now. And um, and I'm, I'm glad you said that because I mean, clearly, lots of people are going to be learning lots of things from your beautiful book. Uh, and one of the things that I learned reading it was, of course, that you know, in addition to you know. Considering this is a book about extremely traumatic things, as you say, from uh, abuse, alcoholism, uh, childhood trauma, uh, one of the most important things that guide the book is uh, a sense of humour. It's it's it, despite what it's about, it's very funny, and clearly uh, humour is very important to, to you in your uh, marriage and family life. Uh, h- how do you kind of uh, find a sense of humour every day? Well, I mean, I think humor is like music. It's it's helpful. And it's everywhere, for God's sake. I mean, if you look, if you have eyes that are open, you'll find funny stuff that people are doing. I I, um, I go on the axiom, if you're, if you're not laughing, you're crying. So I choose to laugh. <laughs> I mean, I'm constantly stressed out about what's going on. So, you know, you just got to find the joy in it. And there is there is a lot of humor out there, especially in some of the silliness that some people are saying. It's so. it's a ridiculous world we live in, and yeah. uh, to acknowledge that you know opens your heart to laughter, which is a great healer. It's right up there with songs, and you know, and you know this, James, because of your profession. Uh, you know, you you know you help people when you make them laugh. Hundred percent. You make people feel better. Yeah. Takes pain away. It's all positive. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you both so, so much for joining us today. And, and more importantly, A, thank you for you know many years of uh, incredible music uh, for, for all of us, but and also for this uh, beautiful book, which it, literally, I mean, it's rare that you read a book that you know will, will, will change so many lives. And that's how I felt reading it. And I can't thank you both enough. Now, thanks for reading it, A. And B, I hope I get to meet you face to face when all this is over in St. John or Rothsay, I think is where you are, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. I can't wait. I, uh, I I can't wait to give you both a, a, a real hug when those things are allowed yes. again. That's what I want to do. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Hugs are good. They don't hurt either. Yeah. Thanks so much, James. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. And be sure to buy Sean and Andrea's book, One Good Reason, published by Nimbus from nimbus.ca. Further details can be found in the brand new volume of Edit Magazine, available from all good book and magazine retailers across Canada, or from our website, maritimeedit.com. See you next time. Podstarter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.